Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Fraser. Today I'll be speaking with Professor Danny McCauley, MD, about the article Simvastatin in the Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Danny is a professor and consultant in intensive care medicine at the Royal Victoria Hospital and Queen's University of Belfast. Welcome to the podcast and congratulations to you on the publication of the trial. Many thanks. Danny, the concept of statins uh, having a role in sepsis and inflammation unrelated to their lipid-lowering function has been around for some time. Can you explain the basis for this mechanism? Sure. So most of the effects relate to the downstream uh, effects of HMG-CoA reductase uh, inhibition. Uh, and essentially, there are a range of mediators that are inhibited by that pathway that are important in driving inflammation and uh, other uh, pleiotropic effects. So because you inhibit the uh, downstream mediators through this pathway, um, you see a reduction in inflammation, which is driven by a reduction uh, in NF-kappa-B signaling. You also see a reduction in endothelial dysfunction, so you see improved endothelial permeability and they're probably the, 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 the main effects that are implicated uh, in the development of ARDS which uh, statins can affect. There are also um, some non-HMG-CoA reductase uh, inhibition effects. There's evidence that statins uh, interfere with CD11A, CD18 binding to ICAM in leukocytes. So they're the, the, the major data around the in vitro effects. Increasingly, clinicians are losing faith in the concept of the magic bullet approach to very, very complicated pathological processes such as sepsis and ARDS. How do statins differ from, from those magic bullets that have been previously tried and have failed in sepsis and ARDS management? The uh, rationale that led us to consider that statins may be different, really related to not only that large body of uh, in vitro evidence, but there was also um, uh, a large body of uh, animal data looking at statins and uh, reducing uh, experimental uh, lung injury, as well as a, a large number of observational studies. So it was really a large body of preclinical and observational data in the setting of a therapy which was perhaps more pleiotropic than some of the other more specific uh, therapies uh, targeting perhaps a specific mediator had been. And that was really the driver that uh, in the setting of a, a drug that had a, a range of effects plus this uh, large body of data that really drove us to uh, ask the question, would statins be different? Danny, obviously to get to the point of HARP2, there must be a significant body of evidence behind statins in, the, in their use in ARDS. Can you summarise that data for us? Of course, yes. Um, so in addition to the, the sort of work that I've alluded to from in vitro, in vivo and observational, we undertook a, a series of small, uh, really experimental medicine and, and phase two studies. And, and this was an attempt really to... Um, have more confidence that uh, statins might be effective uh, in large trials with patient-centered outcomes. Um, and it's really to 
you know, get at the point that you allude that there's lots of um, potential therapies that have been um, unsuccessful. So we wanted to try and uh, have confidence that statins uh, might be more effective. So we undertook really three large studies that are worth mentioning, or three small studies that are worth mentioning. Uh, first, a, a study in healthy volunteers who were given uh, endotoxin at very low dose to induce uh, pulmonary inflammation. And that uh, cohort were then pre-treated in a randomized controlled fashion with either simvastatin or placebo. And we found that there was a reduction in pulmonary inflammation uh, as measured by pulmonary neutrophilia, um, activity of, of neutrophils as measured by maloproxidase, uh, bronchoalveolar lavage, TNF. So that was really the, the first suggestion that in humans, uh, statins could reduce pulmonary inflammation. We then undertook a small phase two uh, in patients undergoing esophagectomy. Patients undergoing esophagectomy have a, uh, a high risk of developing ARDS. And in fact, um, most patients you can detect pulmonary inflammation uh, in the cohort, and that's driven really by uh, the, the one lung ventilation that's required for surgical access. So you tend to get overventilation of the inflated lung and an ischemia reperfusion of the deflated lung. So it's a nice model to, t to test uh, an anti-inflammatory. So we pre-treated uh, patients undergoing uh, uh, esophagectomy with simvastatin or placebo for four days prior to surgery and for seven days after surgery uh, in, a, again, a randomized uh, double-blind manner. And we found, in addition to some anti-inflammatory effects, there was a reduction in epithelial injury as measured by plasma rage, which is a, a type 1 alveolar uh, cell biomarker, and a reduction in systemic endothelial dysfunction as measured by urine albumin uh, creatinine ratio. So supportive data of an anti-inflammatory and perhaps a, a cell injury reduction in that study. And then the final uh, study that we took was a really a small phase two to inform the, the larger HARP2 study where we randomized patients within 48 hours of the onset of ARDS to simvastatin or placebo, again in a double blind randomized uh, fashion. And we found there was a trend to an improvement in uh, pulmonary uh, dysfunction as measured by oxygenation index and a significant, sorry, a significant improvement in uh, non-pulmonary uh, organ dysfunction as measured by the SOFA score. That was underpinned by a reduction in pulmonary inflammation in the simvastatin treated group. And again, reassuringly, the, the, the study was safe, albeit with the caveat that a small study will only be able to detect quite a large safety signal. So that's really the, the background of the, the program that led us to uh, HARP2. And it does indeed lead us to HARP2. Can you tell us what the, the study was, uh, how you ran it? Certainly. So really the hypothesis that we wanted to test was whether uh, simvastatin 80 milligrams once daily for uh, a maximum of up to 28 days improved uh, patient-centered outcomes uh, in patients with ARDS. So it was a, a randomized, double-blind, uh, multi-centered study where uh, patients were randomized within 48 hours of the onset of ARDS to simvastatin or placebo. Um, patients were stratified by 
site and by uh, vasopressor requirement, uh, the primary outcome was ventilator free days, but we collected a range of uh, secondary outcomes around physiology, uh, mortality, safety, uh, and we also plan to collect longer-term outcomes related to health-related quality of life, although that work is ongoing. Danny, you mentioned there that your primary outcome was ventilator-free days, which seems to be a common outcome for these types of trials, and it's worth discussing, I think, what that is and how useful it is. Can you tell us about that, that outcome marker? Ventilator-free days, I think it would be fair to say, is an imperfect outcome. So it's a, a composite of the duration of ventilation up to 28 days and mortality. Um, and it's a difficult outcome measure to, to work with as well because you often get a, a bimodal distribution. So uh, people who die score zero ventilator-free days and then uh, the, the sort of normal distribution uh, of duration of ventilation from, from 0 to 28 days. Uh, leads to an unusual distribution which can be somewhat challenging to analyze particularly in small studies that 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 distribution of the outcome becomes less important in larger studies it's also difficult in that it equates being on a ventilator for 28 days with being dead and clearly uh, as a patient that may not be the same thing but it was really driven by the issue that it's very difficult to do intermediate phase trials uh, that have sufficient power to have um, some sort of uh, patient-centered outcome uh, but are not large enough to uh, inform mortality. It's also fair to say it was driven in part by a need for for licensing uh, studies for companies who were uh, working with the FDA. So to summarize, it's imperfect but uh, probably the best that we have for uh, these intermediate-sized phase two studies where we're not powered for mortality. I suspect that some clinicians, including myself, have uh, only a limited feel for what a significant result might be. And in that, I mean not a statistically significant difference, but a clinically meaningful outcome. Because I suspect we're trying to infer from an increase in ventilator-free days that other outcomes may be uh, improved as well as it were a, a, a very much the surrogate outcome. What do you think is a significant result in that, t- in that sense? Uh, a difficult question. Ventilator-free days is a very difficult uh, outcome to interpret clinically. Uh, if you see a change in ventilator-free days, that might mean that uh, mortality has improved Um, So I think looking at the absolute mortality in the setting of a significant difference in ventilator-free days is important. It might also mean that duration of ventilation has got better. And I think looking at the the separate aspect of duration of ventilation. So I think ventilator-free days gives us a, a, a signal for benefit, but it's probably easier to then look at the the individual components of uh, mortality and duration of ventilation to inform whether uh, it's, it's actually clinically meaningful. Um, in relation to what's a significant effect, if you see a small reduction in mortality driving the improvement in ventilator-free days, that's probably clinically meaningful. If you see that 
uh, a day off a ventilator drives it. Uh, whenever you look at the duration of ventilation, I think that's probably uh, meaningful as well. The, the, the challenge is actually interpreting the, the overall uh, what does a ventilator-free day mean to my patient because the other complicating factor is you can actually get divergent effects. So if a, if a drug improves survival but keeps you on a ventilator for longer, you may not actually see uh, a significant difference in ventilator-free days. So I suppose my general comment on interpretation of this as an outcome would be not only to look at the, the difference in ventilator-free days, but then look at mortality and duration of, ventila duration of ventilation to work out uh, how significant the change is. And what about the results, Danny? What did you find? So we randomised uh, 540 patients um, and uh, the primary outcome of ventilator-free days was uh, not different, both in an uh, initial unadjusted and subsequently adjusted analysis. So the ventilator-free days in the placebo group was 11.5 compared to 12.6 uh, in the simvastatin treated group. So although numerically the ventilator-free days were um, more in the simvastatin treated group, that was not significant. We found similarly no difference in non-pulmonary organ failure-free days. In relation to mortality, um, there was a 4.8% uh, reduction in mortality in the simvastatin-treated group. However, that again was not uh, significant. Data that's not in the paper, um, we've, we've followed patients up to uh, 60 and 90 days. Um, and although the mortality difference uh, is still not significant. It's certainly maintained and is somewhere between uh, 6 to 7% at 60 and 90 days. And then looking at the, the Kaplan-Meier curves for unassisted breathing and survival, again, although uh, simvastatin uh, has a higher uh, rate of unassisted breathing and a, a higher survival, it is not significant. Sorry, the other important issue that's, that's worth mentioning is that uh, safety was a, a, another important endpoint, um, and there was no suggestion of uh, serious uh, adverse events in the simvastatin treated group. So there were increased incidents of um, uh, transaminases being elevated and uh, high CK, but with adequate uh, blood monitoring and stopping of the, the study drug uh, at a, an appropriate threshold levels for safety, there was no serious adverse events. So in the last couple of years, we've seen the results of several statin-based trials in critical care, the SALES trial that was released earlier in 2014, the statin VAP trial and the Australian-New Zealand statins trial in sepsis. Do the combination of the results of these trials put the issue of statins in critical care to bed, do you think? that's a difficult question. So sales showed no difference and, and perhaps even a, a signal um, to harm in relation to uh, liver and renal failure free days. The statin, the AP study used simvastatin and perhaps again showed a, a potential signal for harm. Whereas in contrast, the uh, ANZIC statins in uh, sepsis study while the primary outcome wasn't different um, in people who were um, on statins prior to randomization, 
they actually had a uh, signal to uh, a beneficial outcome taken in the setting of our study where clearly no significant differences but perhaps a, a signal for uh, a mortality benefit that just to emphasize was not significant I'm not sure if the question is answered completely. We certainly know there are a range of meta-analyses um, that, that will publish over the next uh, one to two years, um, and we're also planning an individual patient uh, data meta-analysis to try and get at this question. So not wanting to sound uh, obsessive about the role of, of statins, uh, I think there is still some uncertainty. I think the other group that um, the ANZIX trial uh, maybe talks to is perhaps uh, prevention may be a better target than cure for statins. And clearly, um, as I mentioned, the, the study that we did prior to our uh, pilot study with the LPS model and in the esophagectomy cohort were pre-treatment uh, and showed uh, a biological effect. Um, so perhaps that's another area in which um, statins might have a role. It does raise the question, doesn't it, about the seemingly serial failure of the larger trials to back up the preclinical data. Do you have a feeling about that, how we can uh, better target the use of the resources that we have for investigations in critical care uh, to try and get some successful larger-scale trials? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the million-dollar question. So I suppose um, the first thing to say would be a study that shows no difference um, is still valuable. It, it tests the hypothesis um, and answers the question. But of course, uh, clinicians want to know what therapy will improve the care of our patients. So uh, I can understand the question. Um, there's lots talked about this, um, perhaps by enriching the population for a, a more severe cohort, there, there may be a, a, a way to um, make positive findings more likely. So looking at the neuromuscular blockade work, the prone work, um, they tended to recruit a, a more severely ill population with a PF ratio less than uh, 120. So perhaps enriching for a, a more severe cohort who are more likely to benefit. And then the other um, way might be to see if we can identify populations within uh, the overall uh, population of ARDS. And there's some nice work published recently in Lancet Respiratory Medicine by uh, Carolyn Calfee, who was able to see two distinct groups within the overall population of ARDS and within those distinct uh, populations, there was differential response uh, to PEEP. So perhaps uh, a subpopulation that could be identified might be useful to study. One of the problems with that um, approach is actually to be able to identify these populations, you need to um, have access to near patient testing of biomarkers. And we're clearly not at that point yet, although I think there are diagnostic companies that are certainly working towards that. 
So I suppose they would be the, the, the two big uh, areas where I think there might be the possibility to improve our likelihood of success. Thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations to you and your group on the publication of a successful trial. Well done. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the authors and not necessarily those of the MRC, NHS, NIHR or the Department of Health. This study was funded by the UK National Institute for Health Research Efficacy and Mechanism Evaluation Program and others. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. Learn how to effectively identify, diagnose, and manage patients who present with signs and symptoms of sepsis at the Sepsis Without Walls Conference to be held September 25, 2015 at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, USA. This conference is held in partnership with SCCM and Johns Hopkins Medicine. Visit www.sccm.org slash sepsis for details. Todd Fraser, MD, is an intensivist and retrieval physician based on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, Australia. Dr. Fraser completed his undergraduate training in Melbourne before undertaking specialist training in hospitals in Geelong and Sydney. His specialist career has included time as a director of intensive care at Mackay Base Hospital in Queensland regional director of training for Care Flight Medical Services, and as a staff intensivist and flight physician. Dr. Fraser has extensive experience in critical care education, including simulation, web-based training tools, examination preparation courses, and instructional video. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.